Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Evan Ratliff, joined by Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. Good afternoon. Hello, hello. Hi, guys. I've missed you. How are you doing? Evan, who's on the show? <laughs> uh, this week on the show, I talked to Yapoka Yibu. She is the author of this book, which I really liked, called Anansi's Gold, The Man Who Looted the West, Outfoxed Washington, and Swindled the World. It's an absolutely wild con artist story about a guy named John Ake Blameza, who is from Ghana, and he convinced many, many people uh, in the 70s and 80s that there were riches that were taken out of Ghana by its first president, stored in Swiss bank accounts, and that he, Blameza, could retrieve this money if only he could raise enough funds to do so. And uh, of course, he lived lavishly on the funds that he raised over many years, but somehow kept being unable to get the money out of the Swiss bank accounts. And he needed more money to get the money out. And it's like a crazy story, but it's wrapped up in politics, in history, in colonialism, in the post-colonial period. And Yapoka and I talked about how she found out about the story, how she got into it, and how she kind of peeled back these layers of deception in it. And uh, I really enjoy talking to her. Now, Evan, I know that you are, as I am, something of a connoisseur of, of the scam. Uh, does that make this story the like original Nigerian scam? I know it's actually Ghanaian, but like, is this the origin of the like, I have a bunch of money trapped in another place and I just need some money to free it story? Yeah, I mean, she writes about that in the book and it's sort of like, it's sort of the big origin of that idea, although the idea also traces a bunch of different places. So it's not like the 419 scam, but it does kind of like create a sort of template that then uh, starts to become, you know, your average 419 scam. Refined and perfected through history. Yeah, but this guy's operating at a, at a global level. He's, uh, I mean, you ran for president of Ghana to keep the scam going. <laughs> I really look forward to this uh, this book and uh, interview. Both sound excellent. Totally um, unrelated, but after we do this, I do want to talk to you guys. I've got a pretty good investment opportunity for both of you. <laughs> we uh, we make this show with the fine people at Vox. They're welcome to invest as well. Thanks to them. Uh, now here's Evan with Yapoka Yibo. Yapoka, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm really excited to be here. I love this book. I was telling you before that I actually did not obtain a like free galley or anything of this book, but I checked it out of my local library after I read a review of it because I love con artist books and 
this book is like a con artist plus it's just so much bigger and it's so fun but it also has like a deep history and a global nature to it that i really wanted to talk about but before that i wanted to learn a little bit about your background and sort of how you got into writing so could you tell me a little bit about when you first became interested in journalism or writing was it as a little kid growing up was it as a young adult it was as a little kid so my mom would take us to the library a lot so when you said you'd like yeah. got my copy out of the library i was thrilled <laughs> it's like the highest honor for me and i just like read a lot like multiple books a day sometimes as a child i like learned to especially in secondary school i could successfully like walk from my bus stop to school while still reading a book oh um yeah like <laughs> where was this where the, the the it was a safe enough environment it was just north london so pretty much <laughs> I just did, I, I feel like the only threats were lampposts. <laughs> yeah. Uh, school uniform had a blazer and I'd usually have like a paperback in each pocket. But because I am Ghanaian, my parents, even my dad, who was a writer, did not think that that was a legitimate profession, which is just classic immigrant parents slash Ghanaian parent stuff. So it's like doctor, lawyer, engineer, accountant maybe yeah and so I wrote a lot and I read a lot as a kid but I didn't think of it as a profession available to me until I was in sixth form we had like a really 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 cool English language teacher and so I just found it absolutely fascinating to like break down the language think about words and what they mean what the connotations are what the process of a word coming to mean things was like just I thought it was a lot of fun. But yeah, I still applied while I was in sixth form to medical school. Oh. And for medical school, you have like, there's a overarching like application system for all universities. And you only have four slots for medicine. And then everybody else gets six slots. So I had two open ones. And so just on a whim, I applied to two writing programs, the two open slots. And then I think I just got really stressed out and upset. Like I actually did get into medical school and I think that's what did it. I sort of started weeping in an English language class <laughs> and God bless my teacher. She went and got someone to take care of the class and like took me into an office and asked what was wrong. And I explained the whole thing that I didn't want to be a doctor. I wanted to write. And I was like in this situation. No, it must have been before I got in because she appended a note to my UCAS application to explain why it was a medical school application that I really wanted to write. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, and it worked. And so I got into a journalism and history program, which was done at the University of London, Queen Mary College, and then um, City University. So it was like a joint thing. Uh-huh. Wow. Yeah, and then that was like just a whole load of drama because my parents didn't love it. Um, at one point, my mum tried to get our priest to intervene. How did that go? He was kind of bemused. He was like, but <laughs> if this is what she wants to do, like, he didn't understand his role in the interaction. I guess because he wasn't gone in, maybe he didn't read between the lines. <laughs> was he yeah. meant to sort of like bring God into it to sort of say, God wants you to be a doctor? 
that's exactly what he was supposed to do. Uh Um, But, like, we went to a church of England church. Like, that isn't really the (laughs) story. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's that's how I got to study journalism and history and also got to learn about the, like, trade and the craft. And I think it, like, the program doesn't exist anymore, but it was absolutely like brilliantly constructed where you would see how history influences journalism and journalism influences history and you get all this experience that was supposed to like turn you into a very very good journalist it was a great deal of fun it's that seems a very relevant background for this particular book which weaves journalism and history together it feels like yeah i think it just shaped the way i think about writing I, I it was like typical first draft of history stuff but it also just i think it's exciting that you can find contemporaneous information for almost anything if like you dig hard enough or you ask enough people like that is thrilling you can reconstruct a moment in history and when you went through that program and then you start to look around at like how are you going to pursue this professionally what kind of avenues did you feel like you you had? So traditionally, like British journalism, when you graduate, you go to a local paper in a small town and work there for a few years. But um, by the time we graduated, they didn't really exist anymore. They'd all been taken over by giant like newspaper groups and centralized somewhere random that had no attachment to the specific town they were being published in. So that didn't really exist anymore. Or you could start like at a trade publication, so like supermarkets or like lumber. And I had a a few friends who did that and it was like a lot of great experience. Like, especially if you wanted to go into like finance, trade publication about insurance would have been incredibly useful. I kind of wanted to write features and that that wasn't necessarily something you started out doing yeah but I did get to do an internship at Newsweek I think maybe my second year in the program like their summer internship program had like slots for international journalists so I got to work there over the summer based in the UK or based in New York based in New York and so it was like the very last days of like Newsweek as it was, like the executive dining room with the like white tablecloths and shell shell crab. And our job was mainly to shepherd copy into production. So like I was in the international section and yeah, we would shepherd copy from around the world and you'd talk to the writer, talk to the reporter, because sometimes they weren't the same person, talk to the editor, and then there was just like a number of steps you had to take it through before they could typeset it and put a headline on it Mm -hmm. and get it ready to go. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. (laughs) It's like, I got to live in New York. But I also got to see this version of running a publication, which was also dying out. It's like every time I, like found out something about my craft or got to do something cool with it, that thing was wiped out or that part of the industry collapsed. I know this feeling. (laughs) (laughs) But that didn't cause you to leave it. I mean, a lot of people then find their way into something else because 
that either demoralizes them or they just don't see a path to making a living. Yeah, entirely. A lot of things that you can use your journalism skills for pay way better than journalism. Almost anything else you can use those skills for is journalism. But like, I have realized that I'm stubborn and a little foolhardy. And so even though there were clear disadvantages to trying to be a journalist, as like journalism collapsed all around us, it's what I wanted to do and it's what I love to do. But yeah, I fully understand why people went into other lines of work, other bits of business. It's it's horrible out there. Like I freelanced for a good few years and towards the end you'd spend way more reporting a story than you could get paid for it. There was almost no point to the story but the story itself. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that's the thing I've I've always thought for years, it's like the real danger when you're freelancing is to try to make an hourly calculation of how much work you spent in versus how much you got paid for it. Because then you could compare to many, many jobs and it doesn't, it doesn't look advantageous to be spending your time in this way. You just have to avoid making that comparison if you can help it. Yeah. Cause when you do like, I remember I would look at my taxes and obviously you have to do your expenses and then I'd look at what I brought in and it was just, it's pretty devastating, actually, because, like, I went to school for this. Like, I did a BA and a master's and did a bunch of interns, and I was really excited to be working at it, and it was virtually impossible to make that a thing. Yeah, unless you were incredibly fortunate or your family had enough money to back you while you earned no money for, like, a decade or so. Not to linger too long on this, but like, how did you get through that? Other than stubbornness, like, how did you make it work to get to the point of being able to write this book? Because like, I read some of your early story, you have early stories from looks like your freelance time, rewriting for like Quartz and the Atlantic and the Guardian. And how did you actually like stay afloat to get to this point? I feel like afloat is a generous interpretation of the situation. (laughs) Fair, fair. I don't even care. <laughs> I don't even care like whether HMRC, like the tax authority, is listening. Like it's the numbers, like you said, were horrible. And partly I had come freelance so I could spend more time in Ghana and I could spend more time with my family, especially my granddad, who was getting older. Um And because most of my reporting happened in Ghana, it wasn't, it wasn't at all a cheap way to do it. I can't even describe it like that. Like initially I could stay at my mom's house, but um, it was out in the suburbs. And so it's like three hours in traffic morning and evening just to get to my office. So eventually I just had to start paying for accommodation, but Ghana was a lot of fun to work in and I managed to find a few really good stories. And I was lucky that I had family in Ghana who supported me. And like I had a partner here who was really great with airline miles and hotel <laughs> like hotel point systems. And yeah, and like I got a couple of like decent funding opportunities, which really helped out. 
and then I think I just I really liked spending time with my granddad I didn't get to grow up with my grandparents and so what little time I got with them I cherished a lot mm. my granddad was a big talker and so the stories he would tell about the past of our family or about Ghana just kept me going through like this horrible like six hour commutes every day and through paying through the nose for accommodation and like just gathering debt like <laughs> so I think it was like a lot of luck and a lot of support from the people around me a lot of support from friends as well they kept me afloat long enough that I could make a plan to stop freelancing and hopefully find a slightly more sustainable thing to do and what happened was the exact opposite <laughs> well let's let's talk for a second about the kinds of stories that you're drawn to um and there's one in particular that you did this guardian story about the fake embassy which i feel like maybe encapsulates a certain aspect that also is in this book which is like it's one thing to find like a story of some malfeasance or someone running a con or doing something but it's another thing to find a story where the rest of the media has actually gotten the story wrong that feels to me like a real reporter's moment so what drew you to that story or as, as part of a larger question about like what kinds of stories do you like to tell i was drawn to that story because it was mostly just like it just happened reporting there weren't, weren't many like second day stories and I found that odd because it was a big and weird story. Like somebody was running a fake American embassy. How do you even run a, a fake embassy? Surely everybody knows where the real embassy is. And the picture <laughs> was weird and confusing. It's like nobody drove past this house and thought it was an embassy. And like, I was like, just this doesn't make any sense. And I would like to know what the hell was happening here. And also because in the back of my head, I knew that like, it was just like a fraught topic and a very complex one because of Ghana's history. There have been lots and lots of periods where people just have to go and work elsewhere to make a viable living. And so there are Ghanaian expatriates and immigrants all over the world. And because it's an African country, the hoops people have to jump through to get a visa are absolutely absurd. Basically, you can only get one if you are either, no, a combination of lucky, moneyed, connected, have extensive education, have traveled extensively to begin with, have worked abroad or went to school abroad. It's like, that's what it takes. You have to be 2% of the population to successfully get a visa to work. Mm-hmm. In a place like this so i can see why the fake visa scam would work ostensibly because it's something people need i just couldn't see how they would rock up to the building i saw in the picture and <laughs> think this was, was gonna go well everybody knows what it looks like like they're pretty prominent buildings <laughs> yeah. in every like major capital yeah so uh, initially i was just like i just want to know what happened and then like as i started digging away i was like this is this is weird i spent a lot of time in like the courts going from office to office trying to find the case and that took absolutely ages and then it took ages for me to find the house like 
it had been like the general area was named, I think, in the story that went around. But like, I couldn't, I think, find it two or three times and I couldn't find it. And it didn't make sense to me because it was like kind of a half residential, half business area that backed onto a river and then the industrial area. Like it wasn't anywhere near any of the other embassies. <laughs> and then I had to, I like talked to one of the reporters who had initially found it. Like there was someone on a wire and that's the story that had gone all over the world. And then before that there was um, someone who runs a local paper. He's almost a one man band and he was the first one to find it. And it was really weird. And so what ended up happening was I had to harass the media people at both the immigration department and the police for, I want to say, like a month, maybe across two trips to Ghana, over and over and over again, until they just relented and found me the investigators. I can remember it took ages. I went to police headquarters countless times. <laughs> I was virtually stalking the investigator and it was well, like at a certain point it was clear that they were avoiding me so after all of that like irritating people and bothering them I found like the prosecutor and also the arresting officer and then that's when it got really weird <laughs> as if it wasn't weird already that's when it got really weird yeah like the case was not as described the crime was not as described. Even the police officer was like, I was there, I recognized this picture, but that was not at all what was happening. <laughs> there was no fake embassy with a flag. They had all these details, like the flag was hanging out front and there was a portrait of Barack Obama on the wall. Like just totally fake details had been inserted into this stream of stories. So weird, yeah. I should say that it would not be rare to find a picture of Barack Obama on the wall anywhere <laughs> well, in Ghana. Like, it's Barack Obama. <laughs> People were very proud. Uh, but no, yeah, there was no grand flag or Obama. It was like a really modest house. And the owner, she was actually away all the time and I could never catch her. But she had rented the front of the house out to a tailor. And so he was in there, like, sewing and ironing and stuff like that. And so I was like, obviously, nobody came past the tailor and was like, the embassy is right there behind the tailor. So, yeah, I had to hang out with the tailor for hours and hours and hours and chat to him before he would finally tell me what the deal was. And then before I could finally meet the owner. But, yeah, the owner just had this very modest house. She made, like, pastries and meat pies. And so the front of the house was all, like, bulk flour and margarine. And then, it's just so strange. She, like, took me on a tour of the house. There was, like, a room that she had, like, rented to what was ostensibly a criminal organization that was involved in some kind of, like, travel-based irregularity. It was all very hazy. And then out back, it was, like, really beautiful. It was, like, an old house. It had been, like, painted pink and it had faded. And there were all these, like actual like staircases and then behind it was like this gorgeous bit of the Odor River which is usually kind of like a dead industrialized just a dead river uh it usually didn't look that pretty 
Oh, and I remember the owner was super suspicious of me and wouldn't really talk much to me, even when I spent time hanging out with the tailor. So I, I asked my granddad to join me to like <laughs> make me seem more trustworthy huh. because he could confirm my Ghanaian-ness. And he was like, yes, I will be doing that. That sounds like fun. <laughs> and so it was only when I brought my granddad, she just, part of it was that she had to be polite to an elderly Ghanaian man. Yeah, and part of it was yeah. like, fine, okay. I will talk to you. Yeah, it was all very strange. <laughs> Bring your grandparents yeah. on reporting trips, I think is, is a, I've never heard that wisdom imparted. On multiple occasions, my granddad, like, saved my stories, saved my ass. <laughs> and he was, like, having a great time with it. Like, he just, <laughs> he just loved <laughs> just seeing these random bits of Accra that he either hadn't seen in ages or he didn't know, like, had changed to this extent. Yeah, so it was a lot of fun to take him along. Like, he would vouch for me and I would provide entertainment, I guess. But yeah, so then it was, like, a lot of talking to all the investigators and police officers and hanging out in the courts, waiting for the, like, case to be called. Well, part of why I brought it up is I feel like, for me, it maybe because I read them very pretty close together. Like it really connected with the book because part of it is just like the idea that what people in other parts of the world are willing to believe yeah. about Ghana. And like this story comes around and they're willing to believe like, oh, there's a fake U.S. embassy that everyone just believes is a U.S. embassy and they're all getting defrauded by it. Even though there's an underlying real problem of visa fraud, the yeah. grander story that gets told it's very similar to the story that gets told in the book, which we'll get to in yes. a second, but they're also like 30, 40, 50, I don't know how many years apart, like they're decades apart. And to and sort of see deal. this modern story, it's kind of like, well, it's the same. It's the same thing. People are still willing yeah. to believe these things. I think that's what actually interested me about it. Like it didn't pass the smell test mm -hmm. and it relied on this idea that Ghanaians would not know what an embassy looked like, which like, even if that were close to a thing, like even if the entire nation was like like one of those villages separated from like the rest of the country and reluctant to contact anyone and sort of like protected, it just wouldn't work because television exists and the internet exists. And so I was like, it's just, I can't imagine anyone, even if there was like a gigantic flag thinking that this was the right place to be and so the story going viral just relied on this idea that like people would somehow not know what the american embassy in their own capital city looked like or where it was support for this show comes from sylvan learning as a parent you want your child to have every opportunity but giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 
360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. So let's talk about the book. Maybe we should step back and just explain in your basic way that I'm sure you've done many times, <laughs> what exactly the nature of the con was. Like, who was Blay Mesa? Like, just to explain that in a little capsule. The con was John Michael Blay Mesa said he had been like a confidant and or relative to Ghana's first president, Kwame Nkrumah, and that Nkrumah, like there'd been lots and lots of assassination attempts and Nkrumah knew that at some point there would be a coup and he would be deposed. And so he hid lots and lots of Ghana's money in, in banks abroad. And on his deathbed, he entrusted John Akablameza with these accounts. And his job was to like make sure all the conditions were met to collect the money and give it back to the people of Ghana. Um, but it was such a great quantity, like an unthinkable sum, mm -hmm. that, yeah, Playmaza could do anything he wanted with a portion of it. And so if you helped him cover the costs, like the administrative costs of meeting all the conditions of the trust, he could give you a massive, massive return on your investment. And sometimes, like, they would be in the process of like freeing the money from the banks and so you'd get your money in like weeks or days and then it ended up being years i know you've told the the origin story before i've seen it in another interview but i still want to hear it of how you came upon the idea of writing about this particular guy so my mom used to send me whatsapp forwards and they would be like deeply irritating or just like misinformation. And I'd be like, you know, this isn't a thing. And she's like, fine, explain that to me. And I would. And then she would go and like send that to like group chat or the person who had sent it to her. Like, actually, <laughs> so I was fact checking WhatsApps with my mom. And it was a clip of the 60 minutes segment on John Ackerblue Mesa. And it was the bit where he's like, sitting on a gold Louis chair and talking to Ted Bradley. And it was just all very strange. And it was going around because it was an election year and a bunch of parties had been thrown off the ballot for irregularities. And so people were talking about precedent. And the biggest case anyone could remember was when Le Mesa ran for president. And so people were talking about that. And then the clips started going around. So her question about it was like, do you think what he's saying is true? And I was like, that's absurd. Like, no, he did not magically somehow gain the trust of Nkrumah and access to millions or billions of dollars that like only he had control of. Like that was an absurd premise, but I couldn't stop thinking about it. And about the fact that like my mom, who was like otherwise very serious and skeptical, would be like, well, 
But then every time I talked to someone about it, they'd be like, well, and then they'd have a story about either a politician stealing unthinkable sums of money, money being disappeared and never found again, or at the time, Nigeria, I think, had successfully repatriated a whole bunch of money that officials had hidden abroad, like in Switzerland, I think. I was like, fine. If everyone has a story about this, I would like to know how possible it was. Yeah. And then we, we should say, like, this happened over, you know, a long period of time, including a lot of it happened in the 70s. Yeah. Well, so this is stuff that that is, you know, Blade Maze is not alive anymore. He is not. A lot of the people involved are not alive. So how do you set out to approach trying to capture because like the book it like captures not just the details but like a certain like style like i can picture these scenes you know like it's like a 1970s movie when you read it and i'm wondering how you sort of set out to like construct this world given that a lot of it had sort of you know gone into the wind yeah i think in the beginning when i thought it was mostly like a caper like scam book. I wanted it to be fun and a little kitschy and readable. And so I was like, this is what I want to evoke, Garner in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And I'd seen little glimpses of that in like pictures and stuff like that. But I ended up having to just read a lot of newspapers from the period. Mostly I was scanning for mentions of Blade Mesa, but I'd, I'd read about what else was going on. Like nightclubs, sapphic dance shows, but also like government crackdowns on smart, smart, like this weird clashing worlds. And then I think I tried to contact everybody who was still alive and who may have seen anything, which took a lot of time. And I played phone tag with a lot of people who died, like while I was trying to get in touch with them, which Mm. was deeply sad. I didn't enjoy the idea that like a lot of these people have information that nobody else in the world has. And I was like, it doesn't seem fair. Like everybody should be debriefed before they die. Yeah. It sounded a bit grim. I'm sorry. And then, so I just like tried to immerse myself in the world. So I looked at lots of like James Barner is a famous Ghanaian photographer who covered a lot of that era. I tried to read a lot of books watched a lot of movies and just like surround myself with like articles and clippings and ephemera from the time that would help me figure out what everything looked like. And so I, because I spent so much time in like the British library going through like Ghanaian newspapers during the time, I clipped random articles that I didn't think would be necessarily useful, um, but were kind of tangentially related. So then I could like, I could see what the weather was like on some days, or I'd see a description of the location that popped up in my story, or I'd read about a character just casually. And then like maybe three months later, I'd realize they were involved and I'd have to go back and reread everything and put like, join the dots. Mm-hmm. It was really strange. Everything started to get like really, really circular. At what point do you feel like you started thinking of it as more than just a a kind of caper type story because it eventually there's a lot of history woven into it, which when you read the book feels essential because you have to understand why yeah. people would believe 
that this money exists and it has to do with the president being falsely accused of corruption and all of these layers yes. of Ghanaian history. And so when did you start realizing, oh, actually, I need to kind of unpack all of that as well? So when I thought it was Kepa and I talked to my editor and he was really good about being like, yes, love this sort of modernist Afro-futuristic, like feeling vibe, lean into that. Mm-hmm. And then I started, like I had a like a spreadsheet that was just a chronology and I started with, I think, Blay in 1972, when, which is when all the like American newspaper coverage started and when the diplomatic cables started going around. And I would recognize the people he was hanging out with or be the people vouching for him in the newspapers were names I recognized. They were like very prominent Ghanaians. And so I would go back to when they were actually like in politics or in the cabinet and try and figure out why these incredibly prominent people, including like actual founding fathers of Ghana, would dissociate themselves with Playmazer. And a lot of them had been either fallen out with the president or been thrown in jail for corruption which was not a thing that was clear in any of the coverage that I had seen in the seventies. Mm. And so I had like a, like my head in a hands moment and realized <laughs> that I had to go, I had to go right back to who Nkrumah was right. and how it got into the situation that all these prominent people would back someone who was telling stories that could not be true. And also just, I think I would have needed a lot of that off the clock stuff to, yeah, fill out the story. Because obviously you have to understand why it was that people would believe that Nkrumah could steal like astronomical sums of money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was that when I was like, it doesn't make sense unless you knew what happened to Nkrumah and you knew about the independence movement in Ghana and you knew about the way colonialism warps things and the fact that it has a really long tail. Yeah. In order to understand why everyone would believe that this money could just be taken out of the country, you also have to understand that way more money was taken out of the country. Like the the country was actually stripped of its resources and money. And so of course anyone would believe this is true. But then the, the flip side of it is the the investors in the scam many of them are from from the us i mean we haven't quite described yeah. how big this is it covers the whole world you've got like kissinger sending cables saying basically watch out for this guy don't do business with this guy and the american ambassador in ghana at that time was shirley temple black <laughs> as in shirley temple which is an absurd detail that i really enjoyed <laughs> <laughs> yeah um and also all over the world, at least 300 people who would talk to the authorities in, I believe, Philadelphia, lots and lots of investors in Ghana and the UK, um, and some from South Korea and Germany, countless people as far as I could tell. 
yeah, and they, a lot of people were involved for decades. A lot of people put their businesses and their homes on the line for decades. Like, a lot of these people were wealthy and could, like, take the losses or write them off, but a lot of people were not. That was another point at which I realized this was more serious. You write about this in the book. It's like, to people in Ghana, it was a chance to, like, bring money home that would help the country or save the country. And for people in the US and other places who were completely ignorant, it was colonialism. It was like a chance to loot the country. And you write about this more elegantly than I've just said it. But when you write about con artists, I feel like there's sometimes a tension between admiring the con and keeping in mind the victims. And I'm wondering if you experienced that tension. Like when he kept going, and he kept oh making it bigger. Did you feel that as like, wow, he's he's actually brilliant in some way? Yes, completely. Like, especially in the beginning, I was just kind of in awe of what he had seemingly gotten away with. Like, it, it didn't make sense that he would he would be imprisoned or come close to being imprisoned or like put on house arrest or any of that stuff so many times and still somehow get off and be able to keep running the scam so much that it like outlived him. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially at the beginning when it was a caper, it was just kind of funny. It seemed like he just scammed rich people. And like, I remember I was in like the courts in Philly, like in the county clerk's office trying to find court documents and I would describe it to people and they'd be like, well, yeah, that's, so he just conned rich people money. That's hilarious. That's like Robin Hood stuff. Um, and I was like, yes. <laughs> and, and then it, it just, as I went on with my like preliminary, like going through papers and going through documents, it became clear that like a lot of the people recruited by Blay Mesa or his American partner, Robert Ellis, they couldn't afford to lose that kind of money. They were, they thought they'd get it in a few weeks and use it to buy birthday presents. And that did not happen. And it also became clear that as Blaine Mesa went on, the lengths he was willing to go to were astonishing, but also just so, like, it it got really dark and consequential and far-reaching. After a couple of coups, he, I I never know how to describe this because it's kind of a tough topic for me, but he basically got in bed with a military dictator, Mm -hmm. um, Jerry Rawlings, to be able to continue the scam, to like be let out of jail, to travel around and keep finding more people, convincing them that they were like working and getting the money. Mm -hmm. And that, involved getting into bed with just probably the worst administration Ghana has ever had. They literally came in on a wave of blood and kept doing that. Mm-hmm. And it was just so odd because ostensibly what they were doing, the brutality and the like outright murder was about law and order. But here they were actively propping up someone they knew to be a con man and giving him the backing of the state and I don't think I expected to find that yeah I don't like I didn't expect him to smuggle weaponry I didn't 
expect I mean I should have like how else would he have gotten away with with everything he did I just didn't think that he would become so enmeshed in power and politics that he'd play such a big role from a reporting perspective you also I think you maybe describe this in the book I can't remember there's an issue with sort of archival research because these subsequent administrations and these coups the leaders try to wipe out the previous history they try to rewrite the previous history and how did you grapple with trying to get past the history or or uncover the history that had been erased that was like the hardest thing it was also just really really weird to see because we know it's a thing that kind of sort of happens but then I go and pull something from like the British Library which is a library of record and someone would have managed to like rip out the pages I was looking for hmm. yeah there were rumors about this happening in Ghana as well um people just disappearing entire books or bits of information um it took ages and ages and ages to track down the report made by Ghana's like Truth and Reconciliation Commission into everything. And that just didn't, it had been scrubbed from the internet pretty thoroughly. I think there were physical copies in like one or two libraries. And it just took ages to dig it out on the internet. So a lot of what I had to do was just gather anything I could that sounded like it might be useful or it might be the exact source I was looking for. Um, it also didn't help that like sources were mislabeled or misnamed mm -hmm. and a lot of them no longer existed. And so I remember I was trying to find one article about Robert Ellis that had been referenced in either the Philly Evening News or the Enquirer, but they got the name of the organization wrong, sorry, the paper wrong. And so some of the British Library helped me get the title that was in the Philly story. Um, but it was the wrong magazine. And then I don't know how, probably one of those like those search engines that has like listings of mentions in books, like Kathy. Mm -hmm. So I had to go through that and find what sounded like the right thing, but it was out of print, but also it was like a very small local <laughs> local publication. And so then we you know have to beg the library, like this was during the pandemic. So beg them to send us pages or do an interlibrary loan. But because it's copyright material, they could only send a few pages. Well, we didn't know which pages were involved, like, because we didn't know the publication or had it to hand. So it was just lots of that uh -huh. and lots of, like, digging through stuff, trying to find one detail. Um, lots of talking to people who had a better idea where there might still be sources and lots of getting the story or the details from as many different sources as possible. So like people, sometimes I just hear casually, like I get talking in Philly to someone I met or to like a Lyft driver Hmm. And they'd have this fascinating piece of ephemera. And I'd be like, there's no way that's true. That sounds like an Aboriginal legend. But like every time it was true. Every <laughs> single time it was true, which is so strange to me. Yeah. And then it also helps that the National Archives here at Kew, they declassified a lot of stuff that was really useful for me um, as kept working on the project, but they also accidentally declassified some stuff. Ah, that's always that nice. <laughs> yeah, that was really handy. 
So it was fantastic because like it was documents that like stood up the more absurd things or the more hard to prove things that people told me. And was the sentiment that you encountered, you know, even among family members in Ghana or friends in Ghana or just generally, was it, um, don't dig up this story. Like this, this is a negative, like don't, don't, don't dig up this past or were people, did people want the story told? Like this is a story that's never been told. What kind of feedback were you getting? So initially it was like, why are you writing about a con man? He makes Ghana look bad. Mm -hmm. Nobody needs another crime story about an African person. Mm -hmm. And I found that irritating because like, isn't the whole point of being a complete person, complete people that like we contain multitudes. We too can be like epic world leading con men. (laughs) Also like, it's a great story that everybody should like everybody should get to see that 60 minutes piece everybody should like revel in the insanity of what happened and then like a lot of people were like oh i remember that guy like and everybody had just like a really weird story a lot of people remembered him running for president because he just hand cash out or feed people during these rallies so he was remembered fondly for that he was also remembered as like really really generous Mm. like he supported a lot of organizations and individual people, like apparently people went to school because of him. He also got the his football team trained in Brazil. Like people were really, really like impressed by that. That came up a bunch of times. And then especially when the story got darker after the coup in 81, a lot of people were like, like, I don't think it's a good idea to dig around here. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time, the former military dictator, General Rawlings, and also his like fearsome security chief were both alive. And I had tried to, like, I was in the process of getting in touch with them, but mm. I was outright told that the security chief, Chekata, just would not talk to me because of my name. My father had briefly been in politics after after the coup um, as part of the party rulings brought in and then sort of started to kill his way through. And so I was a little concerned about that, but I like it sounded to be like a fun time to go and talk to people who had tried to assassinate your father. Like, cause if they had been successful, I just wouldn't exist. Yeah. And can you imagine that conversation? Oh my God. Also, they just, they knew information nobody else did. Um, unfortunately, I didn't get to talk to them. They both died pretty close together actually. And actually, yeah, I found that frustrating because I really would have liked to talk to them. I feel like there are probably more complex reasons to for them to have participated in this than they had made any public statements about, and I mm. wanted to know what those were. Mm. Well, that's another aspect. I mean, we've talked a lot about the history, but there's also this sort of human nature aspect to it, both blame Mesa and like why does he keep doing it there are all these moments where they could be inflection points for him to get out of it and he of course just goes deeper but then there's also the investors who 
they refuse to turn on him because they're so in so deep that they yeah they can't admit something sort of humiliating about themselves that they got caught up in it and i'm wondering how did it leave you feeling about human nature did it confirm something you knew going in or do you feel like you changed your view of human nature through reporting this it was weird i guess in part because it was a caper and then it was this incredibly serious thing that was entwined with my family history mm-hmm. so at the beginning i was like people are terif- terrible people will steal people will lie successfully also which is just kind of a grim thing but then reading like through the bits of history with Nkrumah and then how thoroughly the lies about him came to shape shape histories about him like I was really hungry like it enraged me because like it was just so much easier to find the misinformation about him than it was to find just straight up information about him mm-hmm. and it was just bizarre like this was Ghana's first president like an independence era hero and he's basically painted as a con man and that's an incredibly fucked up thing for a nation that's trying to find itself mm-hmm. and then i was kind of awed by the capacity of, of all the ordinary guardians and like also like the people in positions of power to like keep this country going through like unthinkable instability and just horrible leadership and how dedicated people were Hmm. to keeping Ghana and Ghanaians alive and the lengths they would go to to support each other. And then I got horrified again when I read about all the atrocities between the two coups. And then like I would talk to people and almost universally. So some of the investors were like, I just, I don't want to talk about this. Some of them were happy to like talk on background about stuff around it, but not specifically about what happened. And this was especially true for the people who had like become strained from their families as a result of their involvement. Mm. Yeah. And other people were happy to chat. And the vast majority of people I spoke to thought of Blaine Mazer quite fondly. It's odd. Even the people who were like, I had my hands around his neck. He was like, charming, funny, remarkable. Um, A lot of them had convinced themselves that while he was a con man, the story he had told was true. Mm. And a lot of them had been in like, been seen, heard, been in social situations where they heard stuff that seemed to confirm that. A lot of them had been on the trips to Swift Banks where a combination of people actually opening accounts and also people courting Boy Mazer had made it seem like this was all legit. Mm-hmm. And so they were holding on to the story and holding on to the fact that at some point this money would have to emerge. And so it was really weird because despite everything that they had been through and the time they spent, they still, I guess maybe because of it, um, they still thought very fondly of him. Yeah, I think he he was probably just that magnetic and they spent so much of their lives with him. Yeah. So that was, I don't know, I don't know how I feel about that, just that it's 
strange and I was mostly very angry and heartbroken at the damage that I found and the damage that had been done to Ghana and what people had had to endure in what was essentially just this like chess game between people. Mm-hmm. There were like lots of bits where I was just like livid and trying to write through things. And then there were lots of bits where I was just like fascinated or amused and trying to write through things. Um, I don't know what it did with my faith in human nature. I think it made me think both more and less at the same time. And also that's what I, I came up with the like every everybody should be debriefed on tape before they die because people like leave with secrets that nobody else knows, nobody else has access to, like answers, events, tiny details that could change the course of people's lives. Like people would disappeared during the coups, like the, the families never heard from them again, could never bury them. Like they deserve to know what happened. Mm-hmm. And there was just like countless things like this. So does this all make you want to pursue a different kind of project? What did, what have you moved on to since, <laughs> since the book, something completely different or, or in the same vein? I'm mostly just taking a break from obsessively pursuing one thing. Like I got really, really hyper-focused on it and like I feel like my friends spent a lot of time trying to get me to stop doing research and to actually write the book like actively interviewed <laughs> and so there was lots of stuff I came across that wasn't related as I was digging through archives and stuff like that and so I'm trying to play around in the archives and feel something else out yeah I'm terrified that I'm gonna end up with another like multi-year ridiculously expensive like story to dig around in. <laughs> but those are the good ones. <laughs> that's the problem. Like the numbers really don't work, but that's where all the good stuff is. That's it for this week's long form podcast. Thank you to Yapoka for coming on the show. Her book is called Anansi's Gold. You can get it everywhere. Our show this week was edited by Gabriela Saldivia. Our show notes were by Megan Valley. My co-hosts are Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. We're brought to you in partnership with Vox. Thank you for listening. I'm Evan Ratliff. We will see you next week.